Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Laura. How are you? Hi, Julia. Yeah, great. How's your week going? Really well, thank you. Um, I'm knee deep into organising a webinar at the moment. So there's lots of um, organising of schedules and coordinating diaries, but uh, it's on a really interesting subject. So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it. What have you been up to this well, week? So I've just finished a strategy report for Quality Meat Scotland, which has been fascinating. I've done a load of research for them. So uh, yeah, all written up, all done. So that's great news. Perfect. Now, we should probably say we were expecting to have a guest on for this episode. Unfortunately, they had a family emergency, so they've had to pull out, but we are looking to rebook them. So hopefully they'll be back next week. And we've also got a sponsor again this week. Yes, it's Shopper Intelligence. Shopper Intelligence is the first and only syndicated measurement program built from the direct voice of food and drink shoppers. With unique store-wide metrics in dozens of categories, giving you why and how shoppers buy, not just what they buy. If you'd like more information, the link is on the show notes or just go to shopperintelligence.com. Great. Shall we get started? Let's go. So my first pick for this week is a brilliant article from Bloomberg Businessweek. It's probably one of my favourite articles I've read in a long time. It's called The World's Livestream Queen Can Sell Anything. And the livestream queen they're talking about is a 34-year-old Chinese woman who calls herself Via on social media. She is a selling sensation, shifting huge amounts of product through her livestream shows, which the article describes as sort of their part infomercial, part group chat. And the way this works is Via will pick a product and talk her audience through the benefits, the attributes. She'll often try it live as well. Say if it's a food product, she'll eat it or she'll put on a lipstick. She'll often have guests to do that with as well. And it's just a really sort of chatty, entertaining and fun to watch format. And crucially, her audience can buy those products straight away while they're watching her on the live stream, usually at a really attractive discount as well that she's negotiated exclusively for her audience. Now, this probably sounds a little bit niche, but the figures here are absolutely staggering. I couldn't believe it when I read this article. So she had a record audience of 37 million recently, which is bigger than the Oscars got or the finale of Game of Thrones. And she sells all sorts of products, um, from cosmetics to food to technology to carpets. um, And her audience places orders worth millions every night. This all adds up to the fact that Via has become a really important player in lots of brands' launch strategy for the Chinese market. The article talks about P&G, for example, which has worked with her for a Chinese launch and is actually now making a point of getting executives who are coming to China from other parts of the world to experience live streaming 
including doing a little bit of live streaming themselves so they just really get the mentality and understand how important the sales channel this now is for the Chinese market. The interesting question the article raises is, you know, it's obviously a huge thing in China, but could this work elsewhere? And the answer to that seems to be, yeah, possibly. I mean, on the one hand, live selling isn't new, of course, and combining entertainment with commerce isn't new either. You know, we already have shows um, selling products. We've had those for a long time. Teleshopping has been a, a thing for a long time. But we also have influencers promoting products on social media in paid posts. So, you know, it sort of raises the question, is it really that much of a step to, to then say, well, if you're already, you know, posting paid posts on Instagram, is it too much of a step to say, well, not, now you're not just promoting, you're actually actively selling the product to your audience as well? The big question mark or the missing sort of jigsaw in all of this seems to be around technology. The live streaming platform used by Via in China, which is called Taobao, is completely integrated into Alibaba's e-commerce ecosystem. So the buying experience is seamless. So if her audience watches her, you know, endorsing a product, talking about a product, trying out a product, they can buy that product incredibly easily. You're not asking people to click through to somewhere else and log in again or enter your, your bank details or account details. You actually can come pretty close to something like impulse shopping. And the article you know, quotes a few experts saying that that is really um, such a big reason for why it, that format is, is taking off so much. Sort of no friction between entertainment and buying. You know, people are sort of buying into her as a personality. They really like spending time with her. They like listening to her. And when she talks about a really attractive product at a great price, they also can just very easily um, buy that product. There are some interesting moves happening elsewhere in the world that sort of suggest that this is a direction that other platforms are looking to take as well. I mean, there's Facebook's new partnership with Shopify, for example. But we are still quite some way off that truly seamless experience that shoppers are already able to get in China. But I wouldn't be surprised at all if we saw more of this take off over here as well. And especially now that visiting a store in person is a bit more difficult. You know, of course, we can buy things online, but sometimes just having a little bit of personality added to it, having someone explain a product can make a big difference to a buying decision. So um, watch this space. But in the meantime, it's just fascinating to watch. And um, the article is full of some really great videos as well that sort of give you a sense of how those platforms work and what the live streaming experience actually looks and sounds like as well. What did you make of it? Could you see yourself buying products um, through through a live streaming platform like that? I thought you were going to say, can I can I see myself uh, on telly trying to sell those products? And I was going to say, oh, That's the maybe, next step. Yeah, a bit of a push. Can I see me buying them? Of course I can. I'm a marketer's dream. Uh, so uh, that's for sure. This article that you found, uh, I think, is the, the, the best one I've, I've read so far. And it's going to take some serious beating. And, and it's a must read. And you're right. It feels a bit gimmicky to 
begin with and you know is this that something that um it could actually have impact but that when you see that the viewer numbers are um uh, above the finale of game of thrones and you know at that sort of level and such a high conversion rate it's just absolutely phenomenal um and i think some of the things in there which i really enjoyed about the article is this perception of uh, scarcity and you know this countdown and her having a conversation with the production team just off camera can we get more stock can we make this happen and 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 some of the discounts that they offer during the show sounds sounds absolutely fantastic and i also like the idea that that they've executed they've got this uh, uh, big building by the looks of it at their hq which they mock up as a as a private department store so is this actually the future of dark stores taken that one step further that actually we don't want to go shopping and concerned about going shopping so that let, let's an influencer walk you walk you through the the, the bricks um tangible structure and and give you that experience and then also talk about a discount and talk about uh, the, the products as well and then the other bit that i really like from some of the people that are buying from from uh, uh, this channel is um, about the fear of missing out. You know, this is actually appointment to view TV. Uh, this isn't, you know, something on catch up. People are, you know, example in the article, you know, putting their small child to 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 bed early or getting childcare to watch this and worried about, you know, making sure that they don't miss out. So I, I was absolutely bowled over by it, and for for the food sector as well. And as you've said, you know, for the players of like P&G are looking at this and starting to use it and Tesla and others but food sector huge opportunity once the tech comes online do you think this could be something that could roll out in the UK because in the US you see this a little bit don't you sort of their cheesy infomercials around fitness equipment mainly but you know is this something that we could see more of um in the UK I I think potentially I mean the big question for me really is about credibility. So I get that someone like her is is an in- entertaining personality. So she's worth watching just because sh- people like to watch her and she's good entertainment. And then she gets some fantastic discounts. So that also gives you a specific reason to, you know, to to watch her and then to to go with her endorsements. I think more generally I have this issue with with influencer selling uh, generally is that Maybe I'm too cynical, but I I don't know how you make the credibility work because I think that sort of influencer-based selling is incredibly powerful if, as an audience member, as a shopper, you genuinely think this person is only endorsing a product they genuinely believe in. Yeah. But how do you know? Because the whole point is that they would be saying that they're only endorsing it because they really they really believe in it. And I think there are some influences that are getting this right. I mean, I was thinking about um, I absolutely love buying you know cosmetics and things like that. And I think there are people like Sally Hughes who writes for the Guardian, for instance, Caroline Hirons. Again, where I kind of think, you know, I probably would buy from you. If you had a great discount going on, I I kind of feel like you are people who are doing this ethically. But there are lots of others where you kind of would be a little bit concerned that, you know, are you actually getting um, accurate information? I don't know. So that for me, I think it's like how as as an influencer, how do you 
sort of prove your credibility and your your impartiality on something like that yeah and the 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 caroline hiron's example is a great one someone that's created that fierce community that will buy anything that she recommends but also she's a i guess a consolidator of product and gets product at a, a discount so it made me think of her a little bit when when i read this article but something the food industry could definitely learn from brilliant totally i need to tune in and actually, there was one thing that really reminded me um, of that is there was a piece, I'm going to find it and put it in the show notes, but there was a piece um, probably a month ago or so, also talking about live streaming platforms in, in China and how farmers had started using them. So this was partly connected to COVID, you know, people were sort of looking for direct to consumer routes to market. But they um, they also found that it sort of opened up an opportunity to tell the story of their produce because you can take your phone and maybe you can go out into the field or, you know, into your greenhouse or wherever you are and you can actually talk a little bit more about what you are growing or what you're producing. So, um, yeah, actually, I, I wonder whether there's an opportunity there for farmers to do a different kind of storytelling on these platforms as well. But yeah, it'll be an interesting one to watch. Yeah, brilliant article. What's your first pick this week? So my first pick is from Fresh Produce Journal, uh, and this is talking about a new report. Um, uh, and we've spoken quite a lot about food service. So this is a food service back to normal by 2025. Uh, and it's a report uh, called The Immediate Future of Hospitality and Food Service. And it's written by Simon Stenning, who's um, a fantastic analyst and um, insight guy looking at the food service market. I've been lucky enough to hear him speak a couple of times. And over the last couple of episodes we've spoken about you know how we feel uh, food service is, is going to look and evolve but this is the first time that I've seen some actual figures around it so it's great to see Simon d- doing this research piece so what he's saying and, and what Fred- Fresh Produce Journal are reporting is that um, the food service market will uh, almost halve in 2021 uh, with 22% of hospitality outlets closing by the end of the year and, and how, how stark that is um, he said that the report um, in the report that revenues across the industry will fall by 23 billion pounds achieving only 53 percent of 2019 levels obviously a huge chunk of that is because they haven't been trading but as things do slowly uh, start to open up over the next couple of weeks more so then it's still not obviously going to be the, the level that, that that we would hope uh, it's really interesting in, in the uh, summary of the report as well that they include in the article that around fast food and that reports better outcomes for fast food which will achieve 77% of normal revenues for the last for the rest of 2020 and we're seeing so much of that already aren't we across social media and mainstream press you know everyone seems desperate to get to back to McDonald's or KFC and I haven't braved the queues yet but I will I will eventually so that they're they're okay but it alludes back to the conversations that that we had last week about you know how will people feel going back to 
um, a restaurant or a pub uh, when they they uh, haven't done that for quite some time, the whole social distancing measures. And it also talks about the fact that it's sometimes harder due to their local nature and small nature, the pubs again that we mentioned last week, to, to make them uh, socially distant compliant. There is some potential green shoots in the report. It states around staycations and the fact that the, for the remainder of this year, we may not be doing so much for, uh, foreign travel. And if the Brits are traveling more in the UK, then that could be a, an increase to the economic outlook for the sector. Um, and he also talks about the predictions for the rapid deployment of new technology to help with challenges, especially with order and pay uh, systems and apps, but also with the automation and applied uh, auto, um, AI, uh, artificial intelligence. He said, uh, whereas COVID, many operators felt tech would be a mar- have a marginal role for their businesses as a nature of hospitality is all about human interaction. We'll see the biggest par- paradigm shift as technology solutions that reduce staff contact will now be embraced by both operators and consumers. So I thought um, it was great to see some figures, although some of them aren't particularly positive, but Simon actually stating where he thinks the market's going to go and and what the outlook's going to be. And then finally, it states in the report... um, by 2025 thinks that the market will be back level uh, as I've said and it will be in a state of uh, of positive growth and uh, and be stronger than it is currently this year but yeah it's going to take us five years to get there which is quite stark what what are your thoughts yeah I mean I I agree I think stark is sort of putting it mildly isn't it you know it's obviously encouraging to hear that he thinks it will obviously, you know, go go back to normal at some point, and it's potentially going to be in a stronger position then for for the longer term. But um, that's a dark five years that that are ahead of of that sector, um, and a lot of pain um, for for the people that that work in the sector and that run businesses in that sector. And you know, the point you highlighted about fast food outlets, I think, is is a is an interesting one. Because some of the innovations that that Simon talks about, um, you know, be it AI, uh, be it contactless tech, so you know, it's often the bigger chains that are going to have the money and the scale to to really roll out that kind of technology aggressively. It's you know, it's the smaller operators that are such an important part of our food service landscape as well. How are they going to fit in with that? At, you know, in a climate where not only are consumers maybe looking for more contactless tech to make them feel safer, and they're not necessarily looking for that sort of experiential side that, you know, the, the smaller independent operators really excel in, is that going to rebalance the market quite dramatically in favour of those larger operators? Yeah. Um you know, I, I I hope it won't. Um, you know, I th- I think you really want to have a, a balanced market where you have big chains that provide one sort of experience, but you also have room for really fantastic independent businesses um to, to thrive as well. And it just seems like it's uh, it's going to be a particularly tough time for them, unsurprisingly. Yeah. What's your second pick? So my second piece this week is a news piece from MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and they've put out an article about a startup that's sort of partly based at MIT that has developed an interesting solution to tackle food waste. Um, In fact, as the headline puts it, it is wrapping food in silk for better shelf life. 
The startup in question is called Cambridge Crops, and it's developed a range of silk-based coatings that stop produce from spoiling. Now, the idea of coating produce in some sort of coating to extend shelf life isn't new. There are a number of companies that have developed coatings that stop spoilage. Um, so what's so special about Cambridge Crops? And the way the company is looking to differentiate itself and sort of position itself around food waste reduction is really an, in three areas. First of all, they're emphasising the natural angle. So they're using silk, which is a natural material, and they are not doing anything particularly heavy-handed to it to produce the coatings. In the article, it says they're using only salt and water to isolate and reform the natural protein in silk that's then used to create the coating. So that simplicity is clearly going to appeal to some people and some companies, although of course it doesn't mean that other coatings on the market are somehow unnatural. You know, all of those um, coatings produced by, by the major players are of course edible and they are often uh, derived from plant-based materials. So, um, you know, I'm always in two minds about how helpful a term like natural actually is when it comes to, to food and drink products. But in any case, I think those, those credentials and the fact that the ingredients list is quite small is clearly going to be uh, something that, that is going to appeal to certain people and companies. Beyond the simplicity, though, there's a cost factor because the coating doesn't require lots of ingredients and because it doesn't require complex feats of engineering, they say it's particularly easy to integrate into existing food manufacturing processes. So you don't need to invest in expensive new equipment or modify uh, your production lines. And so it saves costs. So it's not just a kind of natural and sustainable angle. There's also a cost saving angle involved here. And the third point they make is around versatility. And that was the bit that really stood out to me. They believe this coating can be used on a really broad range of products. So they talk about fresh fruit and veg, but also meat and fish products as well. And I think that's quite interesting. Most of the other coatings that I have seen out there tend to be targeted quite specifically at certain produce types. You know, so there might be a specific coating that's especially good for um, protecting avocados from spoilage potentially, or there might be solutions that are better for berries and, um, you know, some for top fruit. So it's interesting to see them clearly positioning this product as something that has applications across a whole range of different um, products. The company got a fair bit of coverage last year. They also previously won an innovation prize, so they've been around for, for a while, but um, they're now clearly getting ready to ramp up commercial rollouts of their coatings. So it'll be really interesting to see how much traction they get with that, in particular when compared with some of those more established providers of, of coatings that are already out there in the market. And crucially, of course, this all ties in to what's happening with food waste. Food waste as an issue isn't going away. You know, the pressure on food and drink companies and retailers to do something about food waste isn't going away. And in fact, you know, we've seen lots of research recently that shows that COVID has actually increased uh, consumer awareness of food waste and has made people um, more interested in waste prevention and waste reduction as well. So solutions like this, whether it's something from Cambridge Crops or, or one of the other companies that's looking at um, helping 
prevent spoilage or premature spoilage on, on produce and all sorts of feeds is clearly something that could um, make a big difference if they prove viable and cost-effective at scale. What did you make of it? Do you think it's one of those technologies or products that's potentially quite difficult to explain to consumers? That was the one thing that, that sort of stood out to me whenever I think about those coatings. How odd a concept is it to potentially get across to shoppers? Yeah, I, I well, I found this article. I had to read it twice. So, it, it, so you're brainier than me. Um, so yes, in 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 a, in a MIT news, I think they could think of a snappier way to explain it for sure. But I think you know you're right. Now is the time. Um, waste is in vogue. People have bit been sharper at thinking about usage of product at home in light of COVID. So it's it's opportune time. Um, but yeah, that. That's a massive challenge for them to explain what this means. But you actually talking it through and maybe you want to sell your services to them about, uh, you know, your avocados. You, you give me an avocado that's perfect. I, I, you know, I'll pay an extra 50p for that because the amount of avocados that, you know, you've got that two hour opportunity where it's mashable on your toast and then the rest of the time it's uh, it's either end of the scale. So I, I think people will be willing to pay. The messaging is going to be key and how they explain this and people don't think that it's it's, you know, a foreign object on their food and that whole natural piece. But as you say, everyone seems to use natural. So that that's really important. The other thing I really liked about the article was it all happened by accident. And he just he just happened to leave some silk dipped strawberry on his bench, and, and then came back and found out actually it had preserved it. And that, so I sometimes think that you know that's great for uh, the entrepreneurs in this world that actually you know some of the best ideas come about by by total accident, as we know. So yeah, I, I think it's got legs, but it's got to be sim simplistic in its explanation to a, a, a consumer that's moving through a supermarket at speed or shopping online quickly. What's your next pick? Uh, so my next pick is from The Times, and this is Sir Malcolm Walker finally gets his hands on Iceland. Um, and it's a really interesting article talking about how um, Sir Malcolm and uh, along with the CEO of uh, Iceland have now bought out uh, the, the 100% of the shares. And it's a, a really interesting story, as we know, um, so Malcolm Walker has been involved with Iceland from the very beginning and uh, launched it back in 1970 um, with a, a colleague, a fellow Woolworths trainee manager. There's now a thousand stores in the UK and employs 25,000 people. Uh, and this is across obviously their Iceland estate and um, their new format food warehouse. Iceland, I've watched them pretty closely over the last couple of years. And one of the reasons that I have is their tone of voice is really interesting when you look at them as opposed to a, um, a, one of the, the big four or, or even big six uh, that maybe have a, a bigger family interest or a, a huge PLC um, shareholder following. Um so the market share for Iceland has actually now increased uh, to 2.4%. So it's still quite small for the for the grocery market. But interestingly, over the last 12 weeks, uh, up till uh, May, for, for COVID period, it's uh, increased by 28%. So I going back to their mention of tone of voice, they've been really bullish on a lot of issues and have allowed them to be pacier, more agile and, and turn things on quite quickly. One of the things that we've seen, I guess, over the last couple of years is their challenge on palm oil uh, and the fact that they've been really upfront and wanting to reduce the, the usage of palm oil in their own brand products. Um, over the last couple of weeks, um, uh, 
Richard Walker, the MD of the company, Malcolm Sun's been really vocal about um, local causes such as Chester Zoo, and they've had this huge uh, Iceland adopter penguin uh, initiative that's been running over the last couple of weeks. Um, and uh, Malcolm Walker himself has been quite vocal about HMRC. I, I know over the last few months as well about the Iceland uh, Christmas sort of club saving scheme that they've got and the challenge that that HMRC are, are putting upon that. So it feels like a, a bit of a coming of age for the business. And I think what we'll see off the back of this uh, and the evolution of it coming back at 100% to, to Malcolm and, and his partner is um, I think they're going to be bullish more so than they've been so far without having a, a stake elsewhere with venture capitalists. And I, I think they will be braver and I think they will go harder to challenge the big four and, and, and nip at the heels of the discounters too. And I think maybe, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, that, that Iceland was seen to be a, a, a poor man's shop, really, of frozen food, and that's where people went if they, they didn't have a, a, a particular um, high disposable income. But boy, has that changed. And then putting the marker down on things like palm oil, local causes, and uh, supporting their staff, I, I think it, it is really, uh, really going to help change the, the, continue to change the face of retail. And just following um, Richard Walker on Twitter, it's interesting, you know, what he he's been up to over the COVID period and as all the CEOs and MDs have tried to be you know, more transparent more open to their supply chain and customers but, you know he's been out doing deliveries and they've got a great um, uh, uh, online fleet and they've been to the market quickly on that um, mainly because a lot of their customers didn't have cars but back back in the day so I'm quite excited by this and I think it's going to shake things up a little bit more and, uh, and we're going to see some more uh, Twitter spats. What, what do you think, Julia? What's your watching brief on Iceland? I agree. I think it's a really great story for the company and for Sir Malcolm in, in particular, of course. I, you know, I, I think they're always an interesting company to watch. They're just punchy, aren't they? Yeah, punchy. They, they, they don't pull their punches. And, you know, your point about tone of voice, I think, is is really important. Um, I really like the blog that Richard Walker writes. Um, I think it's a really good example of someone who's a business leader, you know, obviously writing about what is happening in his company, but, also, but doing it in a way that feels genuinely worth reading. You know, I think it's it's a actually a very good example of a corporate blog that promotes what a company is doing while also providing genuine insight. Um, you know, you always talk about how much you enjoy a CEO interview and the kind of insight that you get. I think um, that those blogs are, are worth reading for from a sort of similar perspective. What I really like about it is that, you know, he talks about mistakes he's made as well. You know, I think they understand that if you are punchy and you take a really strong position on certain um, issues that sometimes, you know, you're going to have to defend your position or sometimes you might get things wrong. And um, I think it's quite rare to actually see a senior business leader be quite so open and talk about things they've tried that didn't work out, um, things they've tried that they may have had to U-turn on or where they might have had to, to, to change their thinking it's such a big opportunity, I think, for, for businesses to, to be more open and talk with authenticity about how they're making those decisions. And I think he's a rare example of someone who, who, does, that, um, who does that really well. 
The other point you made is about product quality. I think, you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, they're really punchy and they are. And they've got a great guy doing their comms as well, which which really helps. You know, they're very quick um, and, um, you know, not not afraid to, to take a stand on, on particular issues. But the product quality is there now as well. Um, you know, I think they've they've done some really smart things around NPD. Um, they've, you know, brought in some really innovative ranges. They've got a much broader appeal now in terms of, you know, the, the products they're offering, you know, frozen seafood, some of what they're doing there with, with some of the sort of natural frozen seafood is absolutely fantastic. And then, you know, they've been really smart around things like the Slimming World range. Yeah. Um, they've just, you know, done a partnership with Gina De Campo. So I think they are, it's, it's that combination of, you know, they're entrepreneurial guys, you know, of course, they they, they have a, a different kind of demeanor and a different kind of attitude to a big four CEO. But it's backed up by some great product quality as well. Yeah, they've got the credentials. And it's interesting when you're talking about leadership and tone of voice and punchiness, and it's a great word to describe it, that the, the, the like-minded CEO that I see in this space is probably someone like James Timpson from the cobblers and key cutters empire you know he, he's very similar quite transparent you know one for his employees and just for, for, for an external looking in feel something that you think yeah I can see actually why your business is doing well and why, why you're try, trying to push forward and, and challenge others in that space what's your last pick my final piece this week is from The New Statesman, and it's a piece by Stephen Bush called The Politics of the Spice Rack, and it's about chilli powder. What I really like about this article is that it takes a commonplace ingredient that many of us probably don't think about that much, I would certainly fall into that category, and it tells the story behind it. Yeah, so we dive into the origins of chilli and why humans have this absurd love of things that are hot and spicy. Um, he talks about the history of the spice trade and Christopher Columbus's role in spreading chili from the Americas to other parts of the world. Um, we also learned that chili powder was invented in the US and in fact by two businessmen at pretty much the same time because they were sort of um, trying to find a way to have chili to hand year round um, and ultimately had the idea to, to grind ch fresh chilies into a powder. Just slightly different recipes, but the concept essentially was the same. What I thought was, was particularly interesting in all of this, and the article is just interesting uh, from a sort of, you know, background reading point of view for a bit of history on chilli, is the point Stephen makes about how little differentiation on quality and provenance there still is on chilli powder, given how popular it is. Um, there are, of course, brands that are doing this. You know, you can absolutely buy into different tiers of, of chilli powder. You can absolutely buy into products that are um, very deliberate in their choice of ingredients, very clear about their provenance. But overall, he says, you know, when you look at what you might just get in a generic chilli powder in the supermarket, you're looking at very different compositions, very different ingredients, sometimes wildly varying heat levels as well, depending on, you know, which, which brand you're buying into or which own label you're, you're buying into. Um, you know, what might constitute mild or hot chilli powder is really, you know, a matter of interpretation. Um, so there clearly is scope here for some more premiumization and some more differentiation. As I said, there are some great brands that do that already, um, but I do wonder whether 
we are going to start seeing a little bit more of that in mainstream offerings too. Now we've seen growing consumer interest in provenance and where ingredients are coming from in all sorts of different sectors. You know, we've seen it for, for salt and pepper, in fact. You know, there's a great degree of premiumization and differentiation on that now, including um, mainstream offerings. You know, something like Malden salt is is a way to kind of buy into something a bit more specific and, and more premium, but still in a very mainstream friendly supermarket setting. So I do wonder whether there's there's an opportunity there to, to do a little bit more of that on chili powder in um as well. But in any case, the article is just a great opportunity, I think, to think a bit more carefully about the rich history and provenance of an ingredient that many of us use a lot and probably take for granted. It certainly made me think a lot more about what's um, on my very dusty spice rack than I would have done in the past. What did you make of it? Are you someone, are you a bit of a chilli fiend or? I know you're challenging my cooking really. My beans on toast is about my level, but yeah, I could put a bit of chilli powder in there. Yeah. Uh, do you know what? Yeah. Obviously use a bit of chilli, but not an expert by any stretch. I hadn't even considered, you know, in the article when it's saying, you know, uh, but buying two brands the same to make sure that the mixes are the same. Well, I, I guess that what it's made me think of is, well, it's been a commodity product and you just throw it in and off you go when you use it. And because it is an ingredient and you may be throwing in other ingredients at the same time you never think oh well actually powder wasn't quite as nice as the one I had last time because it's just lost in addition it's a good point really probably you would maybe blame the mince or you blame something else whatever you're throwing it in so yeah I think there is a huge opportunity for more differentiation and you know as you say molten salt or Himalayan rock salt and you know how the, those categories have involved then yeah it is a, is a more opportunity for, for the chili market for sure and particularly around traceability, transparency and the people that are involved and I guess consumers might want to hear more for the story and be prepared to pay more for the story as well. Absolutely and, I, and you know that Stephen makes a point in the article that because it's such a commoditized product in many cases if you know, suppliers are buying chili powder from all sorts of different sources it can be quite difficult to make sure that the people growing um, the product actually end up getting um, getting a fair reward. Um, so I, I I completely agree. I wonder whether something around the sort of fair trade angle is, yeah. is, is something that can be part of the story. And the challenge I see, and I'm basing this on um, my own personal chili habits here, um, I find when I think about buying into something more premium on chilies, I go fresh. Yes. So I I think it would it re, would require quite a bit of a a prompt and a really strong reason for me to go. Okay, so I'm not I'm you know I'm not buying my commoditized chili powder. I'm buying a slightly posher chili powder rather than saying oh well if I'm treating myself I'm going to have fresh. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I I think it'd be an interesting one to to see in practice. But that certainly. That would be the challenge um, I would I would have to overcome. I think my knee jerk reaction on premium spices, um, herbs as well, is to kind of go, oh, okay, if we're spending a bit more, I think I'll do fresh. 
It's a great point. Maybe back to Iceland, they probably do it already and I haven't spotted it. Is maybe it's a frozen option that we're seeing more and more herbs in a in sort of funky packaging, frozen, and it feels more premium and it's it's better than a, an ambient product in a jar that could be sitting there going mouldy for two years. Yep, that's definitely what's happening in my spice oh, no. <laughs> <Guilty> as charged. <laughs> what's your final article this so week? My final article is from National Account Manager News, and this shopper confidence remains low. Trust in food industry is still high. So this is um, the IGD uh, Confidence Index, which they uh, regularly publish, uh, and it's a review of the latest figures, basically. And it's unsurprising that, that shopper confidence remains at the, one of the lowest levels on record. Um, but what it does actually say say there's a difference um, in uh, shopper confidence depending on where you are in the country. So uh, in London, uh, folks are feeling more confident than the rest of the country, which is really interesting. Uh, And positivity towards food and consumer goods industry also continues as trust sits at a seven-year high. So I guess this is a story of two halves, really. But consumers you know, are concerned about the future, but actually there is still that element of trust. And the article goes on to talk about actually the how the um, particularly supermarkets and the supply chain have done so well in COVID that that's bolstered trust and it's made consumers feel really confident about the market in that space. Other insights from IGD shopper Vista research for May include how easing of the lockdown measures and good weather may be holding back further declines in shopper confidence for now. So basically saying it may go down further, but because, uh, well, not today, but we have had some warm weather, uh, that's going to hopefully keep it plateaued. Um, The other piece that it pulls out in the article is around older shoppers and they actually, and by older, which is a slightly worrying, 45 to 64, pretty broad, um, remain the least confident. Uh, And it's saying many of these shoppers uh, may um, have family responsibilities and may be concerned about the impact of COVID on their health and economic prospects. So I just thought, again, a bit like my first article, this is that we're now actually seeing some stats. What we've seen over the the last couple of weeks is, you know... Uh, data in terms of what what retail is doing but actually how consumers are feeling what the impact that that's going to be going forwards and how that splits across the country and how different categories sort of are winning and losing within that is is really interesting so yeah I I thought that was a good snapshot and it'll be a good one to track and come back to uh, in in the next quarter well what are your thoughts and was there any surprises in there I don't think there were any surprises. I mean, the the shopper confidence figures, of course, you know, are not great, but that's to be expected given what we've just come through. Um, You know, with trust, I think it's always really positive to see that that trust is high, um, that people, you know, have trust in what the food industry is doing and what grocery retailers are doing as well. You know, I guess the question is sort of how does the industry hold on to that trust? You know, what does it do with that? I think we've seen some... uh, fantastic responses to COVID, which I'm sure in a way contributed to to how positively consumers are feeling. Um, But trust can also, you know, be eroded quite quickly. So I think there's also a job to be done in saying, you know, not just what did our response to COVID look like, but what does our response post-COVID look like as well? You know, we already had a few glimpses of that. There was a few negative headlines around some bonuses paid to um supermarket CEO so you know that sort of stuff is potentially not massively helpful yeah so you know there's also a a question mark around what's going to happen to all the workers that were hired 
um, you know, to, to help out on what, what are the terms on which um, they uh, are potentially going to be let go at some point. So I think there's, there's, a, there's a big opportunity here for, for the food industry and for grocery retail to build on that trust and to, to you know, show that the way the industry responded during COVID is a reflection of its moral compass more generally rather than a a, a one-off yeah. um, event uh, you know I think yeah I'd be encouraged by it but you never want to be taking anything like that for granted you know you do have to earn shopper trust afresh with everything you do and um that industry and you know those businesses are going to be under more scrutiny now than they were before as well so Yes, encouraging, but the pressure is on as yeah. well. So amazing to catch up with you as ever. I've loved it. Yeah, me too. Take care. Take care. See you later. Bye. Bye. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the feed industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.